the Legal Underground Podcast, episode 37. On today's show, Supreme Court nominees who didn't make the cut from 1789 to 1987. That and more on today's Legal Underground Podcast. This is the Legal Underground Podcast, hosted by Evan Schaefer, one of the friendliest trial lawyers you're ever likely to meet, but hopefully won't have to. And now, here's Evan Schaefer. Well, it had to happen sometime, I suppose. This podcast has gone historical. To be honest, I got a little caught up in the John Roberts hearings this week. I had a lot of driving to do, and the hearings were on public radio whenever I was in my car. I didn't listen to it all, but I listened to enough to get foolishly caught up in the pomp and circumstance and the history of what was happening. If only those senators on the Judiciary Committee would have had the good sense to keep their mouth shut a little more often. But they didn't, and I suppose that was fun, too, just watching them ham it up for TV. After listening to Judge Roberts get grilled, I'm going to go way out on a limb here and predict he'll be confirmed as the next Chief Justice, which, even if it is historical, won't really be all that dramatic given that my opinion is the same as everyone else's. I guess it's true, undramatic events make for boring podcasts. So rather than talking much more about John Roberts, I'm going to force the drama by looking back into history at some Supreme Court nominees who didn't make the cut. What am I talking about? Well, I did a little checking around and since... 1789, 34 of the 154 presidential nominations to the court have failed to be confirmed by the Senate. Wouldn't that be a drag? To get all the way to the pinnacle of judgedom just to have some old windbags in the Senate who aren't half as smart as you smack you down 34 times. In a few moments, we'll take a closer look at some of those sorry losers. But first, a trivia question that's not so trivial. Why do those vain and pompous senators get any say in the matter in the first place? You think you know? I'll give you another second to think about it. The answer is in the Constitution, Article 2, Section 2 to be precise, which says that presidents, quote, shall nominate, and by and with advice and consent of the Senate shall appoint judges of the Supreme Court, close quote. That's the legal basis for what went on last week with Judge John Roberts, or at least part of the legal basis. The Constitution doesn't actually spell out the entire procedure, the precise details of which I'll spare you since I don't have the time for more specifics, but I can say this. According to my extensive research, conducted using Google late one night earlier this week, it wasn't until 1925 that the procedure of Supreme Court nominees heading to the Senate for questions even got started, and it wasn't until 1929 that reporters were allowed to witness the proceedings. Those proceedings weren't televised until 1981, beginning with Sandra Day O'Connor's nomination. That's a little historical background. When I return following a short musical break, we'll get back to the drama of failed Supreme Court nominations with some interesting facts about other Supreme Court failures. And later in the show, I'll talk about three specific rejected nominees from the modern era of Supreme Court politics, only one of which I bet you'll know by name. Blow 
Welcome back to the Legal Underground Podcast. As your ambassador to the fascinating world of legal trivia, I want to make it clear that if you're ever rejected by the Senate for a position on the Supreme Court, it's not necessarily the end of the road. Don't give up, in other words. That's the clear message transmitted to us from the dustbins of history where, get this, of the 34 nominees who were not confirmed by the Senate, five were nominated again and ended up sitting on the Supreme Court. Yes, there's hope for all of us. If you're wondering about the names of these five lucky individuals, I'll give them to you. There's William Patterson, twice a George Washington nominee. Roger B. Taney, twice nominated by President Andrew Jackson. Stanley Matthews, who was nominated by two presidents, Rutherford Hayes and James Garfield. Pierce Butler, nominated twice by Warren Harding. And John Marshall Harlan II, nominated twice by President Eisenhower. In reporting these facts to you, I'm indebted to an article by Henry Hogue that I'll be sure to link to in the show notes. That's where you should look if you want to know the details of these miracle nominees who live to see another day. Meanwhile, turning to bad news, four nominees to the Supreme Court were actually the subject of not one, but two unsuccessful nominations. Who were these two-time losers? Three of them were the product of President John Tyler, who had the highest tally, eight, of unconfirmed Supreme Court nominations. If you're like me, you've forgotten most of what you learned in the third grade, but President Tyler was the 10th President of the United States, governed from 1841 to 1845, and was known to his detractors, the John Stuarts of the 19th century, as his accidency. So that accounts for three of the four two-time losers. Who was the last one? It was William B. Hornblower who had problems besides his colorful but somewhat unjudicial name. Hornblower was nominated by Grover Cleveland, himself no darling of American history. The first Hornblower nomination wasn't reported out of committee, and the second was rejected. Exactly why it was rejected, I'm not sure. The internet, believe it or not, still has some pretty big gaps if you're trying to do something more serious than figuring out how to get your PSP to work as a web browser. So I don't know why Hornblower was rejected, except that it had something to do with opposition to his nomination by a senator in his home state of New York. I do know, however, that the New York law firm of Wilkie, Farr, and Gallagher, with offices in Washington, Paris, London, Milan, Rome, Frankfurt, and Brussels, was founded in 1888 by Hornblower and is featured prominently on the firm's website. Although the website is silent on the details of Hornblower's rejection to the Supreme Court, it does say that when old Hornblower died, the New York Times said that he was a, quote, lawyer of remarkable ability, close quote. There being no weblogs back then to dispute the Times account, that's going to have to sum up Hornblower's career for us, too. When I return after another short musical break, we'll consider three Supreme Court fizzles from the modern era.
Welcome back to the Legal Underground Podcast. Let's begin the third and last segment with another trivial piece of Supreme Court trivia. What nominee had to withdraw his nomination after he admitted to smoking pot as a law professor? That's right. It was 1987, Justice Powell had just retired, and Ronald Reagan's first pick for Powell's replacement, Judge Robert Bork, had been Robert Borked. It was Reagan's next pick for the high court, who was just a little too qualified for that post, and his name was Judge Douglas Ginsburg. Did you know the answer? It was at the height of President Reagan's Just Say No anti-drug program, a terrible time for the disclosure that Judge Ginsburg had experimented with the mind-altering properties of cannabis every now and then. Under pressure, he had to withdraw his name from consideration, paving the way for Anthony Kennedy to take a seat on the Supreme Court. Judge Ginsburg remains on the influential D.C. Circuit Court of Appeals to this day, where he's the chief judge, or some might say, the head dude. Oh, that's so unfair. Judge Ginsburg, I apologize. Let's move on. Of the 34 Senate rejections for the Supreme Court since 1789, only six happened in the 20th century. I don't have time for the entire list, but if you're like me, you wouldn't recognize most of their names anyway. Today, I want to talk to you about just three of them. John J. Parker, G. Harold Carswell, and Robert Bork. Let's begin with John J. Parker, who was nominated by President Herbert Hoover in 1930. I'll give away the ending of the story first. Ultimately, the Senate rejected the nomination 41 to 39. The labor unions didn't like Parker much, but his real troubles came when the NAACP opposed his nomination because as a candidate for governor of North Carolina, he'd supported segregation and said that African Americans shouldn't be allowed to vote. To this day, the NAACP cites the Parker nomination as a defining moment in its history. There's even a book written about it called The NAACP Comes of Age, The Defeat of Judge John J. Parker. I'll put a link to the book in the show notes. Even more interesting than the story of John Parker is that of mediocre-minded G. Harold Carswell. Mediocre-minded? That's what some said. Carswell was a judge on the Fifth Circuit Court of Appeals who was nominated for the Supreme Court by Richard Nixon in 1970. Many thought Carswell's short career as a judge was too undistinguished for him to be sitting on the Supreme Court, and one senator famously made a speech in which he used Carswell's perceived lack of qualifications as an asset. It's a bit of reasoning that would probably apply to most of us, and it went like this. Even if Judge Carswell is mediocre, said the supporting senator in his speech, there are, quote, a lot of mediocre judges and people and lawyers, and they are entitled to a little representation, aren't they? We can't have all Brandeises and Cardozos and Frankfurters and stuff like that, close quote. Indeed, we can't. But the argument failed to carry the day. Carswell also had some skeletons in his closet. As a candidate for the Georgia legislature in 1948, he'd mentioned his, quote, firm, vigorous belief in the principles of white supremacy, close quote. Not a good resume item. The fact that Carswell had also helped a Florida golf course become private in order to keep it segregated didn't help either. But the vote was still pretty close. Carswell was rejected by the Senate 51 to 45. In his place, President Nixon nominated Harry A. Blackman, and the rest, including Roe v. Wade, is history. And that brings us to the last Supreme Court loser of the day, Judge Robert H. Bork. The date was 1987. The president doing the appointing was Ronald Reagan. 
who'd had little problem with his other nominees, Sandra Day O'Connor and Antonin Scalia. The justice being replaced was Louis F. Powell, who'd retired. The story is perhaps too well known for this podcast, but suffice it to say that Bork was what one writer called a, quote, guiding force of the conservative judicial movement of his time, close quote. Unlike our current nominee, Judge Bork made the mistake of putting his judicial philosophy into writing, which made it easy for his critics to seize upon the things he'd written and make him seem something of a conservative demon. His nomination was rejected in the Senate by a vote of 58 to 42. And that's about all the history of the Supreme Court that I have for today, except to say that once Judge Roberts is confirmed, well, I'll be waiting for him to make some history of his own. You know what I'm talking about, don't you? That funky gold-striped robe that Chief Justice Rehnquist designed? Roberts could do away with it entirely. Rehnquist designed it about the time that he had to go on TV for Bill Clinton's impeachment trial, and my personal opinion is that the gold stripes make the Chief Justice seem a little bit too much like a, I don't know, a peacock. The only one who's come close to changing my mind about Rehnquist as a fashion designer is Ann Althouse, the law professor of the weblog Althouse, A-L-T-H-O-U-S-E. By the way, Professor Althouse has started podcasting. You should be sure to check it out. The podcast is entertaining and witty and great in only the way a Professor Althouse podcast could be witty and entertaining and great. But I'm getting off track. Anyway... Anne's theory about the gold stripes is that they're an indication that William Rehnquist didn't take himself all that seriously. He thought the gold stripes were, like, fun, according to Anne. I don't know about it. But I do have a rule that whenever I disagree with Professor Althouse, she's right and I'm wrong. Based on that logic, I'm out in left field. Yeah, left field. That's where I'll remain until you hear from me next. Because we've come to the end of the show. My sources for this historical extravaganza of a podcast will be listed in the show notes. The music at the two long breaks was by a California band that sent me their CD to play on my show. I liked it. They're called the Techno Squirrels, and I'll put a link to their site in the show notes. You can Google them. Meanwhile, remember that feedback about this show is always welcome. You'll find my email address on my weblog, Evan Schaefer's Legal Underground, at www.legalunderground.com. If you like the show, please tell your friends about it and have them subscribe for free through the iTunes Music Store. I'm going to end today a little differently by playing a song that somebody emailed to me anonymously. It's a parody of the song called On a Podcast that I played at the end of one of my other shows. And it mocks podcasting, so you know it's perfect for this show. I'm also mentioned in the song by name, so you know that I had to play it. It's by two guys named Greg St. Clair and Chris Hicks. I don't know who they are, but in the lyrics to the song, they misspelled my name, but I won't hold it against them. I'm just glad to be in their song, which is sung by, as you'll hear in a moment, Satan. Satan, you know, has a podcast. It's apparently called the Satan Cast. The song contains all sorts of inside jokes about podcasting, which I understood, but if you don't, you don't care, just skip through it. Nobody will know. So without further ado, it's That Satan Cast Song. Ladies and gentlemen, our next performer claims he wrote the song you're about to hear. Let's give a big round of applause right here to Satan and the Unwilling. 
I came here. Podcasting was as nice as Santa's fucking reindeer. And then comes Satan to kick a little ass. While Adam Curry's making sound like he is token grass. Bend down and hold your balls. Cause I'm gonna kick them all. I've already fucked radio and TV and paper and every other media. I think I'm gonna like it. Don't got to watch my language, man. I'm I'm gonna bring it on. Come hear me, Dewey. A girl named Swoopy. A guy who's ninja casting, he's just kind of kooky. A former VJ, five guys who are gay, two unmarried sinners who must celebrate Clown Monday. A yeasty man, a lesbian, a guy at exit 50, a trucker doing podcasts, he's doing over 60. Then there's Rob who quit his job, what was your first computer? Greg and Chris who made the song, three minutes can be cuter. Your voices have been free. And I've come to cast my seed. <laughs> oh, yeah. Come here, get a little bit of this. We got a little love for you over here. Precious five minutes with me, Elzebub's are whining, eating breakfast. PKJ and Jawbones, lots of me, five questions or hashing it with chat Call Catholic Insider, a mommy cast to guard your kids, it's time to exercise her. Contact Evan Schaefer, D&D and Zcast, no one's really safe here at all. No one's really safe, no one's really safe here at all. No one's really safe, no one's really safe here at all. Visit him at the Satancast.com.